complaints and criticism meet. Reference Podcast. All right, and welcome back to the Split Frame of Reference Podcast. I'm your host, Nick. Well, co-host at least. And I'm Allison. And for the other host. The other host. The uh, roadmap for today is, uh, well, it's kind of an interesting little treat. We have a conference we're going to be telling you about. We have a beer tasting no, for Allison. Hey. And we have 1 Corinthians 14, which is kind of the big convoluted passage on gender. A lot of text-critical stuff we'll get into. But first, Allison, we have a conference coming up, do we not? We do. And actually, I wanted to first talk about a conference that already came up. Hmm. Um, On Friday, I actually went to a CCCU conference. That's Council for Christian Colleges and Universities. Hmm. And the topic was Advancing Women in Leadership. Where is this at? This was was at Biola. Which is interesting. That's actually um, where Nick and I met. Mm-hmm. Um, my you, final semester, end of my final semester. Where you fell in love with me, yes. <laughs> that is true. That is true. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so it, it was pretty darn amazing and slightly ironic slash hopeful that it was at Biola. Um, <laughs> but two of the speakers that really stuck out to me were, was first was Mimi Haddad. Oh, yeah. Um, amazing she's the ceo of christians for biblical equality um she's also does consulting work for places like world vision very knowledgeable um Just very epic, wonderful person. epic woman yeah epic, woman. epic is a good way to describe her yep. um she has a very contagious personality and mm-hmm. Just wonderful. Um, so some things that stuck out to me that she, she gave a lot of facts and figures. Um, one was about how undermining patriarchy around the world increases economic productivity and lowers corruption. So basically what you're saying is every capitalist should be an egalitarian. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's very true. Um, and it, it's interesting because so many people think that patriarchy is actually good for men and women and it's the ideal, but we don't see that around the world. Um, we see quite the opposite. And she talked about how dehumanizing ideas about people lead to dehumanizing actions. Hmm. And I would say, too, implicitly in her talk was how the opposite can lead to um, just wonderful results of um, lack of poverty, um, people, men and women thriving. Um, When they would invest in women, they would see their whole communities being lifted out of poverty because yep. the women were good at investing back into the community. And also uh, reforming uh, unethical practices in business and stuff yeah. like that. So. Yeah, very fascinating. Um, so I would really just check up some of on some of her articles online. Um, at uh, I think it's christiansforbiblicalequality.org. Or something like that. Um, I think it's international. But um, the other is uh, Karen Longman also gave a really good talk. Um, I, I won't get into too much detail because we don't have as much time, but... I would look up her research. Uh, she talks a lot about um, the dynamics of a glass ceiling and other metaphors too, um, like the stained glass ceiling, um, the sticky floor. So showing just concrete external factors and internal factors that keep women from succeeding. And the two are very much intertwined. Interesting. Yeah, but yeah, sorry. So the last thing is we do, there is a really good conference coming up uh, by Christians for Biblical Equality. That's Mimi's organization Mm -hmm. called Mutual by Design. 
And it's going to be the 21st to the 23rd of July in Orlando, Florida. Yep. And it's pretty close to Disney World, I believe. Yeah. Who's going to be there? Who are the uh, plenaries? Yeah. So some people that I'm looking forward to, Joy Moore, Ben Witherington, Mimi's going to be there and she's going to be speaking. Ron Pierce, um, when we gave our talk on 1 Corinthians 7, he's, I would say he's the expert on yep. that passage. Um and uh, my actual friend, uh, Tristan Page, will be there. Um, she does a lot of work with homeless ministries and helping women that are getting out of domestic abuse situations. Mm-hmm. And I think hers is going to be on uh, building confidence and resilience and just by embracing your identity in Christ. So nice. lots of good things. <laughs> yeah. So that's just a foreshadow. We'll obviously plug this again once it gets closer and we do more episodes and yeah. stuff like that. But first, my favorite part of the episode is the uh, nope. beer tasting. You know, we need a tasting for you that involves something that that I like, but you don't. I like most of the things you like. Oh, so it. that's how it works. All right, so I'm going to find is, something. This darn is uh, by Founders. <laughs> this is called Dirty Bastard Scotch Ale. And okay, it, I do like scotch. Yeah. Uh, and so this has been on the shelf since 2016. So it's it's going to be pungent and kind of fruity and bitter. And I just, I'm, I'm sitting back watching you take a full sip. Full this. sip? Full sip. Define full sip. Uh, more than a tablespoon. <laughs> Darn, I usually take a tablespoon. Yep. Okay. Here we go. I'll take, I, I, I'll take a couple sips. Okay. Oh, one sec. I said I'd take another darn. Yep. You said a couple, that's two at least. Ah. <sighs> Describe it to me. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I'm not forcing you to do this. I know. This. Wait, yes, you are. Well, okay. Coercion. I'm, no, it's not coercion. I'm just applying biblical okay. pressure. What? <laughs> okay, so has a deep, rich, lightly fl- fruity taste with a bunch of awfulness. <laughs> you know, I can kind of taste the scotch, which makes it, I don't know, but is that where the deep taste is coming from? Yeah. Okay. The, the bitterness is something that the hops have died. And yeah, so and the of, bitterness is the bitterness really catches your tongue at the end. Yeah, and so it's kind of a dry. Your tongue feels kind of dry, like after you drink scotch. You know, your tongue kind of feels kind of crisp yeah. and dry. So yeah. that's where it kind of comes from. So I guess that's what. It is. Um, I wouldn't give Ugh. it a. If I were giving letter grades, this is like a B minus C plus. I wouldn't go after this. But if so, why are you giving it to me? Well, I mean, I, I don't know because it's tradition. A tradition is biblical. All right, so the uh, new thing we have uh, is going to be, I'm going to give a a recap kind of to the, before the text we talk about, I'm going to talk about what happened beforehand. Okay, no, you know what, he needs, we need some revenge here. Um, You know, we still have those awful jelly beans, and I think... No, not when I've had beer. That will... I think... No. Okay, I, okay, not right now, but I think that every time someone gives us a review online... That Nick should try one of these delicious or not jelly beans. The bean boozle jelly beans that almost killed me. Yeah, come on, don't don't leave me hanging here. So give us a review on iTunes. Only a five star review will work. I'm I'm not gonna do it for anything oh. less than a five. It has to be a five star. I don't. You can write whatever fine. you want in the comments. You know, you can say this is awful, but give I give them a five. Give it a five star and say Nick is a horrible human. Being. On iTunes, split frame of reference podcast. Okay, so <laughs> this is good. All right, so we have the Corinthian women. So before we even get to this text, we've already had two major uh, Pauline texts on women. We've had 1 Corinthians 7, which talks about neither spouse having authority or wielding authority over the other's body, which is not just about sex. If you've had sex, it's never about just sex. And so it's a a, a relationship of mutuality, of mutual authority, of shared uh, relationship. And then you get into the issue of 
uh, n neither being. Um, so he, he so Paul uh, has already said that um, not just men. Everyone knew men had authority over their right. Um, their wife's body, but he is telling the men that his their wives have authority over their bodies. Yep. And that they should regard themselves as having none. So yep. that is the husband and and wife relationship. Correct. And if if the wife is is a Christian and the husband isn't, then that family is saved through the power or agency of the wife, and vice versa. And so each one has unique but also equivalent spiritual authority in their lives. Do not deprive one another sexually, and only through prayer. And so it's a relationship of holistic unity. And so and that includes children too. And so then you skip forward a few chapters to 1 Corinthians 11 where it talks about women having their hair done and men uh, having their hair cut in a certain way, which reflects uh, same-sex practices in the ancient world and prostitution and fun, fun stuff like that. And Paul essentially says, ladies, your hair is a good thing. Guys, don't act like women. Women don't act like, as we would say, don't be a hoe in, in public, don't, especially in church. Yeah, and there's a basis for that because prophecy in some of these pagan cults, I think the Dionysius cult. Dionysian um, cult, yeah. Yeah, they they would wear their hair down as prostitutes while they were in ecstatic prophecy. So, it's, a, it's equivalent to stripping today. It's basically when you let your hair down, basically you... More or less, at least signaling that you're that kind of person and you're available. Exactly. You're sexually yeah. available and all that kind of stuff. And Dionysiac would also engage in orgies and stuff yeah. like that. And so... Um, Isn't that that god of wine? It might have been, I forget. Yeah. But the, the whole issue of that text assumes that both men and women prophesy with equal authority. It both assumes that they interact on a mutual level... It just basically Paul is saying only there, ladies be ladies, guys be guys. And there's no gender hierarchy even in the text. It's both prophesy equally, but you do so with respect to the other gender and person. and yeah. Or your husband and wife, if we take that. Yeah, be respectful to the other, your exactly. counterpart. Yep. Your source, your point of origin as men come from women, yeah, women which come was, from men. Yeah, interesting, because yeah, yep. he did revor reverse the source relationships. Yep. Yeah. And then you skip ahead, you know, chapter 12, you have uh, all in one body, a 13, the great famous chapter on love. And then you get to chapter 14, Yay. which is a continuation of prophecy and both men and women prophesying together in church. But then you have a fun little thing that happens and Allison is going to... Wait, didn't we also, in this book, also have a whole discussion on not eating meat sacrificed to idols? Yep. And it, I think, I believe that the Corinthian church um, was having trouble with being um, superior over their brother or sister who was oh, yeah, concerned the, about eating meat the sacrificed Lord's to idols. The Lord's table. People, uh, the, the poor being left out to starve while the, while the rich are getting fat and stuff like that, or those who have nothing. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because nowadays a lot of people will use that other passage on meat sacrifice to idols mm -hmm. to say, oh, yes, I know you're weak, so I will just refrain from drinking or whatever it is. Yeah. And that wasn't, I think, quite the accent. I think it was more they were acting, thinking they were superior because they just went ahead and ate meat sacrifice to idols. Well, on an economic standpoint, too, they are better. You know, because they have yeah. more money and more influence. And more yeah, power. so there so. were lots, there were, concretely, he was, you know, saying, yeah, there's nothing wrong with it, but there is something very wrong with your attitude. <laughs> by by yeah. wielding and exercising this sort of cavalier authority over other people who do not have your privilege or your blessings. Yeah. So. So, yes, then we get to our passage, our um, chapter, I'll say. So, yeah. I think there's so much here, and I really encourage you just on your own, don't read just those two verses like that, that have not been named yet. We'll name, everyone we'll, wants we'll to name know them about. later. But read the whole thing. Read read all of fourteen because you miss so many things. Like you'll you'll see. So mm -hmm. I'll summarize maybe fourteen. Um, 
I'll summarize a portion of it, and then maybe I'll go into more detail on other parts. All right, take us away. So, so for, I guess, one through two, you just get this idea that the big idea here is to desire the good of others and to pursue love. Um, that's, and that's also why Paul in this section is telling them to prioritize prophecy over tongues, um, when, in the, in such a way that the Corinthians are practicing. So again, their problem is to be, is being very self-absorbed, um, having a superiority uh, complex. And Paul really just wants them to start focusing on other people. And in this instance, um, he's making a good case for, you know, let's get away from the privatized language and the chaos and have you focus on prophecy instead since it edifies others mm -hmm. um so again i don't think paul is being against tongues per se um he just wants them again to have the spirit of having putting the church first yeah um and not themselves mm. um so yeah i would read that part from like verses 1 through 19 i think you'll find it helpful um Verses 20 through 25 is where he starts to speak against the, the specifically chaotic way the Corinthians are using tongues. Hmm. So, and in my opinion, this cha this chaos is coming from they all want to to edify themselves and show themselves to be spiritual. Hmm. That's been their big problem throughout the um, this book. Um, they they want to show they they are showing off. I think, yeah. um, and they're all trying to go at the same time. And this not good. Yeah. <laughs> Not good at all. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and start reading, actually reading for you, um, our entire section. Um, maybe 26 through 40. All right. Um, re again, read before it. You're, there's a lot that you're missing, um, as we've briefly discussed already, but let's just start reading it so you can get the sense, um, of what's to come. And here's some things I'd like you guys to just note while I'm reading. Um, who in particular is being told to be silent in the church? And what is the context? Um, some people may think they already know it's, you know, but just listen carefully. Um, I'm going to tell you there's going to be more than one. Um, also pay close attention to see if a block of text seems oddly out of place mm -hmm. and try to think through as quickly as you can, um, why. All right. Okay. So starting at 26. What translation are you using? Okay, I've caved and started doing the NASB. That way I don't have to keep correcting um, bad Greek grammar and other things. All right. Um, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Hmm. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or three at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy, one by one, so that all may learn, and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints." The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to be subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that all things which I write to you 
are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. So, yep, very interesting. Um, I'll quickly just go through maybe some of things I'd like just to be noted yeah. immediately. Um, he's not, he's told the whole church that's being chaotic and disorderly to be quiet and to take their turns. That's the big thing. Yeah. And again, why? Um, because they are trying to, they're out for themselves. They're not edifying the church and it's showing up in disorderly conduct. Yeah. Um, so I think that's something important to note already. Um, and before, so we don't go over, I'll let Nick go ahead and cover the section that <clears throat> you guys are all wondering about. All right, so this is going to be a, a fun section. Uh, this is a project of mine. I love textual criticism. And when we talk about textual criticism, we are essentially talking about the existing uh, manuscript witnesses uh, that comprise the New Testament in order to produce a text that is essentially as close to the original or matches the original or initial text that Paul or Matthew or the author of Revelation wrote. So that's what we're doing. We're basically distilling all of these manuscripts and data to what we think the original text of the author was. Oh, yeah, and let them know, too, what what, what section are you covering? We're covering, yeah, sorry, we're covering section uh, verse 34 and 35. Because that's what everyone's wondering about. Exactly, always. and so... Uh, Two yeah. verses. So, yeah, 34 and 35, this is a, a, a block or a text of, of, of material. And what's interesting about this is... Maybe read it real quick? Yeah, I'll read it again. This is, um, I'm reading from the NRSV. Uh, women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but sh should be subordinate, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Of course, we know from the context this is probably a wife. This is probably referring to wives being silent in the churches. Because Which is ironic because in... 1 Corinthians 11, the and wives are not silent, if it is wives. They're and just speaking authoritatively with deference to their husbands yep. and prophets. Yeah, and so the question then becomes, um, are these two verses original to the initial text of 1 Corinthians, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 14? And there is a lot of textual evidence and internal evidence to suggest no. And a lot of people think yes, but uh, if you look at your NRSV, for example, you'll see that uh, 33b, as in all the churches of the saints, and 36, to verse 36, they are in brackets, and it has a footnote that says, other ancient authorities put verses 34 and 35 at the end of the chapter after verse 40. So it would end, for example, like this, But in, and this is from the NRSV, but all things should be done order uh, decently and in order. Uh, women should be silent in the churches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you see, this this is a unit. This is not uh, a few verse, a few words kind of plucked around. This is uh, shifting text, as we as we know and say, for example, John's Gospel. You know, the woman caught in adultery. That is moving, float or floating. Yeah. Text. So this is literally moving in the manuscript. So yeah. it it shows up in one place and then another. It another. jumps. Yes. So technically, you could have yeah this passage um, show up in another part of this. Um, same chapter like exactly so that's kind of funny and that's usually a signal that this is a Inter an interpolation or a later addition to the original text. yeah someone added it exactly and, and why is that and the but the question is um what are the textual witnesses of this real quick um because it's not, there are three basic textual families of manuscripts. You have the Byzantine, which emerged in about the fourth century, 
You have the Caesarean, which is kind of, I don't know, the D-level manuscript tradition. It's not very good. And then you have Alexand the Alexandrian and Western text. Uh, the Western text is, this text is either missing in these texts or in this manuscript family, or it's at verse, behind verse 40. And so the West, so when you have a whole family of texts of manuscripts, quality, quality, yes. So this, uh, this is a derived text from the Alexandrian, but it's based off the primary manuscript. And then you have earlier manuscripts too, where you have diastigma obelis and stuff like that, which we can't get into. You'll have to read Philip Payne. It's, it's too complex even for me well, to talk I about. Well, I can, I can say a little bit. Oh like, yeah, go ahead, So Payne, you'll want to read Payne's book because he can explain this better than we can. And he does a lot of detailed work. Yeah. Um, I wrote something briefly on, I think, Chris State's blog. I think Theopologetics back in the day. Yeah. Um, but... Basically, there's a special marking or group of markings that is showing in a, a very um, prized manuscript that um, this is it's a our later old, edition. It's our oldest Greek Bible. I think that's Codex Vaticanus. Yeah, and so the basically this person that collected um, pro priority, like had a, a good collection of manuscripts and has been known for getting these right, had written in the margin a, a marking that said, I think it's called a disigma obelisk. Yeah, it's a, it's like a long bar with two dots over it. Yeah, like saying, almost almost like a division signal. No, this is later added. And yep. again, these things would happen. So a scribe, so okay, they're funny. So when the scribes are sitting, like they're 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 hearing, they're seeing text, and they're just copying over and over and over and over again. Um, sometimes they got bored um, and would write in the margins. They would yep. sometimes write notes to their friends like, hey, when are we eating? I'm bored. Yep. Um, sometimes they would write pious remarks too. So sometimes it might be like praise be to God or um, maybe something a little bit more lengthy that they thought. Problem is they would also write things in the margins that, oops, I missed this whole section and I didn't include it. Yep. Uh, I'll just put it in the margins. So yep. The thinking is maybe this happened here, where um, it was take. Maybe they wrote their own pious remark and put it, and so and then pious, next yeah. uh, scribe got the copy and was like, oh, um, this must have gone here or here. Let's figure it out. Yeah, and yeah. this it's not a, a few manuscripts. It's a whole family of yeah. manuscripts. So it's not as if it's one or two. And so when you have this uh, diastigmaobolus, you have this floating text. Uh, that's almost assuredly a, sign, a very strong sign of interpolation. You don't need like 15 manuscripts I don't have from the second century to, to have little warning signals going off in your head. Then of course you have the problem of the immediate or literary context of Paul's already praised them for prophesying, already said they don't have authority over each other's body. And so you have an internal uh, contradiction or, or at least tension here that Paul creates with, by writing this. And then you also have uh, the issue of, uh, of, these, uh, of the law. You know, where's where in the Old Testament does it say, as the law says, women should be silent in the churches or subordinate, or not be permitted to speak? Yeah, and Th has Paul no, ever really appealed to the law? <laughs> not not in a positive way for silencing a marginalized social group. Well, or appealing to the law, really, to base Christian doctrine off of? Yeah. No. And so a lot of people, like D. A. Carson and others, think it's Genesis three that Paul's alluding to, but of course Genesis three is, as we all know, is the curse. It's the fall. Why would Paul appeal to the fall when he's already talking to people who are new creations in Christ? And what does it even have to do, really, of um, speaking in an orderly manner in church? Yeah. And so the issue is, if this is original to the text, if, and I don't think it is, then you have the issue of, is this rabbinic? Is this kind of a saying? Is it 
kind of a cultural thing that is just kind of assumed, oh yeah, women should be silent. But then of course you have, why would Paul say this? Yeah. And it's, we've gone through before. Um, Paul's actually quite, um, a lot of the passages that some people interpret as very sexist and negative are not really that at all. No. Um, so, you know, I mean, he seems to be very open with women and especially women leadership, which we'll get to. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and he doesn't appeal to the law for Christian doctrine. Yeah, so. and then you have the issue, too, of, of certain church fathers. I, I forget exactly which one. I think it's Clement of Alexandria or Clement of Rome. It's one of the Clements <laughs> who uh, is talking about silence and prophecy and uses this chapter and quotes parts of the verses around this to talk about how everyone should be silent, but doesn't mention the women uh, being silent, which yep. either indicates he didn't he had a manuscript that didn't have these two verses or he didn't think they were important or there's multiple, it's, it's like, why, yeah. it, it's too easy for a patristic father who, let's face it, they're not known for their egalitarianism, no. would skip a chance to kind of do what Origen does and throw a slap at the women who, you know, Origen said, Paul sews up their mouths here, you know, in, in, a, in another of his Yeah, writings. and First Corinthians, I think, is one of the most quoted um, books by the early church. Yep. And so basically he's quoting like everywhere before and everywhere after it. And somehow in a discussion on silence in churches... When he's talking about silence in churches. It's absent. <laughs> yeah. And there's other issues too, but I mean, uh, you know, women being silent in the churches and, and just not permitted to speak. It's a threefold repetition of things. And it's like, this is absolutely non-Pauline in the way he talks. The vocabulary seems to mimic 1 Timothy 2.12, you know, uh, should be subordinate. Uh, ask their husbands at home, shameful speaking and stuff like that. And so it, it's more than likely this probably didn't, this probably, this more than probably was not originally in Paul's epistle to the Corinthians. It's probably added. And I think most people who even uh, entertain the idea of interpolation but don't accept it would concede that if this is an interpolation, it happened very early. Yeah. And I'm wondering too, isn't this the one where Payne had that giant footnote? Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> okay. in yes. case you don't believe the claim that the majority of scholars that, um, here, I'll get his book. Yeah, here I'll, I'll read. If this <laughs> is not, this is basically to say the experts in the field of textual criticism. I think Bruce Metzger was very open to it being an interpolation. Um, here we go. And so I'm just going to read a few of the scholars. Or just read. So we're not going to read because like. No, it's no, I'm a not going to read the whole thing. It's a, it's a page and a half. But what you have is. He has a page and a half long footnote. Yeah. You have, for example, you have authoritative scholars like Jerome Murphy O'Connor, uh, Eldon J. Epp, Gordon Fee, uh, Richard Hayes, and just on and on it goes. E. Earl Ellis, I think, even was in favor of the idea of it. And so just on and on it goes. And most text critical scholars. Uh, who've done major work on this passage conclude that it is pro- most probably an interpolation. Yeah, and that's what the footnote's regarding. Yep. Um, he's he's saying, here, here's what he says exactly. Yep. Most scholars who have published their analysis of the textual critical aspects of this passage have argued that it is an interpolation. So he's not counting scholars that have not really done work on the textual critical aspects of this specifically yeah. and just kind of look at it and go, well, I think this, um, like D.A. Carson. Or Wayne he's, Grudem or other Yeah, people. he's talking about people who have actually looked at um, the textual critical aspect, nothing else. Yeah, and it's not to say there aren't textual critics out there who think they are original. I think Dan Wallace thinks they're original and Peter Head and a few people. Yeah. But they're not in the majority. And so, for example, just to show you what this actually means, I'm going to read the text without these two verses and let, just see how it flows. And I'll start with verse 30. 
If a revelation is made to someone else sitting nearby, let that first person be silent. For if you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and be encouraged. And the spirits of, the pro- of prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is a God of disorder. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Or did, or did the word of God originate with you? Are you, or are you the only ones it has reached? Anyone who claims to be a prophet, and so on and so on. So the context actually flows really well without these two verses. Well, yeah, so if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that these things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. Yep. So again, like, this is, all of this, like, in the major um, purpose of this whole passage is, if it's God's commandment that they all live, not just orderly, but it's getting back to edification of the church. Yep. Again, it's a question of symptom versus root cause. And the root cause is their inability to be thinking about others and to being edifying for the church. Yeah, and verse 26 just sums up what should be done then, my friends. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, tongue, or interpretation. Oh, except wives, who should be silent in the churches. Well, and it's kind of weird because, I mean... We're, we start off with this whole discussion on every the, the church being silent and taking their turns. Yeah. And then there's this weird ex- excursus just to tell wives to be subject to their husbands and to be quiet. And then resuming, it, it just, it's a little awkward. Even if you don't know any of the textual critical stuff, it's a little bit of an awkward placing. It, it sounds almost like a brief household code in the midst of a, a, discur- a discussion on worship. It's like, what What does this have to do with the immediate literary context? And the vocabulary, you're just like, where, where is this coming from? Yeah, and I, I can see, so if you approach this text thinking, having certain concepts already in your head. So if mm-hmm. you think that one of the most important things are God's created order, and this, and this means gender hierarchy, you're going to see terms such as, oh, order in the church, and gravitate towards that. And mm-hmm. especially if you already think in terms of um, gender hierarchy because yeah. you got it or from your church context plus Genesis plus first Timothy or other passages, hmm. it, it would make sense for you to think that, Oh yes, this me this is just reinforcing something I hold already. Yeah. Um, but it, it gets kind of weird. I think in how people interpret this passage. Yeah. Um, because they start making these bizarre distinctions between, well, because they have to explain why um, women can prophesy in church, but not... It, it just kind of... It, it's a very strange no, no, dynamic. No, exactly. Here's what they have to do. This is Origen and the early Montanist mm-hmm. oracles. And I'm quoting Origen of Alexandria, who's about 185 to 250 or something like that. And I quote, What are we to make of the fact... And he's talking about 1 Corinthians 14. What, do we, are, what are we to make of the fact that Philip had four daughters who prophesied? That's uh, the... That those are the two daughters or four daughters in Acts. If they could do it, why can we not let our own prophetesses speak? We may answer this question as follows. I love how they just talk like we can answer this question. First, if our prophetesses have spoken, show us the signs of prophecy in them. Well, that's actually not about objection. You just show them the fruit of the prophecy. Well, it's not that hard. And how let everyone have that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a, that's the a standard of every prophet, actually. So yeah. what he's saying is profoundly stupid. Sorry, Origen. I love you, but you're stupid there. Second, it, even if the daughters of Philip did prophesy, they did not do so inside the church. 
Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> Although Deborah was reputed to be a prophetess, Bullpucky, she actually was. That's what the Holy and Errant Word of God says, origin, sorry. There is no indication that she ever corporately addressed the people in the way that Isaiah or Jeremiah did. The same is true oh. of Huldah. And it's like, this is eisegesis of the highest order. This is seriously, this, if someone were to give this to me an undergrad, I would fail them. And well, I would have probably been, Ron Pierce would have failed me if I said something like this. I don't know. Ron Pierce is very gracious. He's very and... gracious, but he still, I, he would have pulled me aside and been like, look. Well, here's the, here's the thing though. Like we all do this. Like it, we, we tend as human beings to just fill in the blanks mm-hmm. and try to make sense of things. And you know, we're no exceptions of that. Um, so, um, let me just also add this, um, prophecy oftentimes people think in terms of prophecies about telling the future Mm. um and i think that's the context in which um, a lot of ideas of oh well prophecy is a passive thing god just tells you what to do and you um just tell what you know versus other there's they'll make a distinction between prophecy and preaching sometimes where preaching has more volition and it suspiciously matches gender stereotypes in the united states which is interesting in of itself but all this to say, prophecy generally is more multifaceted in the New Testament. It's not just about telling the future. That's a very small part of it. Hmm. A lot of it is exhortation. Um, a lot of it actually does involve preaching. Yeah. Um, so Or t- truth speaking. Yeah, it's truth yeah. speaking in, in yeah. a variety of forms. And here in this passage, it's contrasted with speaking in tongues, the way the Corinthians were doing, um, hmm. where... They're just, it's, they're, they're speaking a bunch of gibberish and it's not edifying anyone and they're showcasing it and they're not taking turns. So, yeah. (laughs) So in in summation, what we have about this text is more likely than not based on the internal problems, based on the textual issues, which are, are read paint. It's, it's far more in depth. And based on just the theological issue of what Paul has said before, even in the, quote, negative text, we haven't even gotten to really the positive texts, how Paul talks about women, how he treats women, how he treats men. This utterly flies in the face. This actually creates problems for inerrancy if you're an inerrantist. Yeah, and here's the point Payne likes to bring up um, that, uh, well, so he likes to say that the the understanding of silence here. and being quiet here for the women in particular, mm-hmm. it's talking about absolute silence. Yep. It's not the context of silence or quietness from First Timothy, yeah. where it was being still and having a teachable attitude. Yep. Um, Payne Let the says, women learn. Yep. Yeah, Payne says this is about absolute silence. Yep. Like, don't talk at all, um, too, which doesn't quite fit what Paul's saying in the broader sweep of this passage, and doesn't really fit them actually prophesying no, it with their heads covered um, probably by elaborate braids over their hair over their head. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So this, this doesn't fit in a lot of ways. And so Nick and I tend to think, um, yes, interpolated it's added later. Um, this is not, these two are not the word of God. Um, if you do think it is, um, then make sure to just interpret it in, in context and, be in, be in discussion with other Christians who may disagree. Yeah. And so, in summation, most likely an interpolation, most likely, if it isn't, it, then it's not a part of the original text of Holy Scripture. Therefore, it does not carry interpretive force in our theology and in our practice. 
And if it is, then we have, you know, the issue of, you know, how, how do we deal with it rhetorically and stuff like that. But I don't think it is original. And yeah. I think tactically, though, I've noticed um, sometimes people get defensive about textual criticism, especially if something that they um, that hits on something they hold dear. Um, you're saying it's not there and they think you're just doing it because um, so sometimes it's better to. I guess when you're talking to other people, just fit this passage into the context of the rest of the text mm -hmm. um, for them and to emphasize that um, before you talk about how this is actually added later. Yeah. Um, I found that to be more helpful, but let's talk about some, maybe some books that okay. uh, we can recommend. Yeah, you have obviously Philip Payne's work, his entire chapter is, I think it's like 50 pages just on these two verses. And it's masterful. <laughs> yeah. It's original research. It's groundbreaking research. A yeah, lot of people. He actually, yeah. part, he actually contributes to the discussion in a meaningful yep. way. Yeah, he doesn't just kind of cite, I don't know, Konzelman or Fee. He's like, yep, that's it. Borrowed some Vatican equipment. Yep, actually scraped some ink. Was off. it Sinaticus? Uh, Vaticanus. Vaticanus. I think ah, it's Vaticanus. Okay. I think he also worked on Sinaticus. I okay. forget. So there's that. Payne's work is always recommended. You also have uh, Craig Keener's chapter in Discovering Biblical Quality, edited by Ron Pierce and uh, Rebecca Grotice. Uh, he believes it's original to the text. And so if you want, if you think it's original to the text and you're not persuaded by the textual issues or the internal problems. Or just want another perspective. Yeah. or uh, Yeah. And Keener interprets it in a egalitarian way. And I mean, if, if I were to believe it is original... It's it is a reasonable interpretation if it's re, if it's original. Although personally, I found this text far more difficult to reconcile with my egalitarianism than any other text. Yeah, I didn't. So. I this was never a problem for me um, hmm. whatsoever. I just did not see the even when I was a complementarian on this subject, I just did not see. I, I was taught some good hermeneutics. I think hermeneutical skills at Viola, and when they were telling me that this passage was about. Um, made a distinction about women being more passive um, and, you know, prophecy and being more passive. Basically, a lot of rationalization had to happen um, that was read into the text, and I just did not see that yeah. anywhere um, contextually. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the two best commentaries I found uh, for the interpolation, you have Gordon Fee's now revised classic commentary on 1 Corinthians. Um, really good, really powerful. It takes into consideration all the new data and arguments against him, some really severe and frankly horrible arguments calling into question his credentials and basically saying, oh yeah, he's smarter than me on this issue, but you know, I can't believe what possessed him to do this. And Fee is a textual critic of just the highest caliber. And yeah, his commentary is excellent. Uh, then you have for uh, someone who thinks it is original, you have David Garland. Uh, it's the Baker exegetical commentary, which is a solid, it's a really great commentary too. Uh, so those two together pair really nicely. Yeah, a good place to start, though, would be Payne and Keener. Payne and, and Keener, yeah. Uh, I think Payne's book was maybe 75% longer because he went through every single possible... Oh, yeah, it's 500 pages, I think, alone that on, they took out. on 1 Corinthians 14, which yeah. is like, uh, talk about a snooze fest. Like, oh my gosh. Well, it was ex it was exciting for him, and I would love to read it. But I, I would still read it, yeah, absolutely. I just think he went through every single possible other interpretation of it and refuted it yeah so they said no here here's the essential part so yes read pain read keener um pain's portion might be a little tougher to read so you might want to read keener first and then pain yeah but we like pain <laughs> yeah all right so what are we going to do next time i think we will do galatians 3
Okay. That's a classic egalitarian text. All right. And so uh, next time, Galatians 3. And if you liked what you heard today and you want me to eat a disgusting <laughs> yes. jelly bean, leave us a five-star review. Uh, I will not do it for anything less than five. Um, and, uh, <laughs> yeah, we will see you next time. If it's a four, I might try to force it. No, that one.